the brown while we wait for the choir to get assembled. 220 in the brown.
trying okay okay broadcasting yes I know I have a sister in uh, Rochester New York that's tuning in and others from Pennsylvania so it'll uh, it'll be on shortly if it's not right now but anyway we uh, we're happy to have Jared our elder and come and share with us uh, the word of God brother Jared Everything is set up here. Uh, is Lydia still in the room? She is. Lydia, would you go get me a, a cup of water, please? Thank you, honey. As typical with me, there's no name of the servant until I'm standing in front of you. Uh, Brandon asked me a few moments ago uh, what the name of the sermon was. Thankfully, I have one this morning, but I don't have a scripture reference for you. So, the, the message this morning is called the three R's, that is the letter R, of resurrection. Okay, so uh, let me just share with you this morning um, some thoughts that God has given to me this week uh, regarding what I think is a, a rather unique perspective on the resurrection. But before we do that, let's ask God's blessing on our time this morning. Father in heaven... We are thankful for the resurrection of Jesus Christ because without that, there isn't any hope for us who meet today. Uh, Lord, that's what makes being one of your children uh, so special. We thank you for the hope and for the love and the peace that comes to us via the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask this morning that you would be with us as we look into your word and we examine these things in scripture. And may our hearts rejoice uh, with those who are already in heaven. Uh, with our Savior. We ask this in his name. Amen. 
This morning, we celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Unlike when we gather each month to celebrate the Lord's death in obedience to his command, today we celebrate his resurrection. All of time centers around the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, a span of about 33 years in the whole of all of the world's time. In the whole of all the world's history, pagan people must wonder why it is that Jesus Christ and his work have not been forgotten. There are probably countless influential people throughout the many cultures and time periods of the world who have come and gone in our lost antiquity. What is it about Jesus that is so special? And why, out of all of humanity, is he remembered? The further we move away from the event of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the more absurd it becomes to the world. I mean, we have not witnessed many, if any, resurrections in a long, long time. And they were tremendously rare, even in Jesus' day. Our scientific and medical communities have made many strides in preserving life, but they haven't been able to bring life back to someone who has died. Yet the rarity of the event, and the even more unique way by which it was accomplished, as we'll look at later this morning, contributes to its significance. For some, the resurrection of Jesus Christ anchors the whole of their belief. And for others, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is complete nonsense. To the world, one man's life is insignificant, a mere hiccup in the whole of our existence. But to God, who had orchestrated all of Earth's history to this point, who had planned these events to the last detail before he began the world, and who would point to this event from before it occurred and continues to point back to it after it transpired, this is the focal point of all time. This event is important to God. It has endured the passing of almost two millennia. This event has changed the world, and it continues to change the world. Usually, we like to ruminate on the benefits that we experience from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And at some point, we will, even in this morning's message. But for a while, I'd like us to examine the benefits that God experienced on the dawning of that first Easter morning. As the first rays of sunlight tore the last vestiges of night away, an empty tomb is revealed. And simultaneously as the birds sing, announcing the end of night and the beginning of day, the angels and inhabitants of heaven rejoice now that the night of sin has been peeled away forever, and the king has triumphed. Just a few days ago, while hanging naked on a tree, his appearance marred beyond human semblance. This same king uttered the words, it is finished. The work is done. But what has been gained? I often misspell the word resurrection. I have to stop and make sure I add enough R's and add just the right amount of S's. There are three R's in the word resurrection. 
Today, I'd like to give us three R words to help us remember how to spell resurrection. These words are from the perspective of what was accomplished by Christ and for Christ. The first R in the word resurrection is for routing his enemies. A rout is a complete defeat. It is very important to notice that the battle that was won on Easter morning was the battle between God and his enemies. Zephaniah 1, 7 through 13, Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. On that day, I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar, for all the traitors are no more. All who weigh out silver are cut off. At that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent, those who say in their hearts, The Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. Their goods shall be plundered, and their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. And as you can see from this text, God is defending his own honor. Brethren, we often become enamored with the concept of Jesus defeating our enemies, that we forget that our enemies are first and foremost God's enemies. And let me remind you that we once were labeled as such the enemies of God. Ephesians 2, the first three verses, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind." The resurrection of Jesus Christ was the last blow against the last enemy, death. Everything is interconnected, you see. Death is tied to sin. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. Sin, at its basis level, is disobedience to God. Jesus said of himself, I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 6, verse 38, Jesus came to earth and completely and perfectly obeyed God. He was therefore the only innocent man ever to walk our earth. If then he was truly, completely, and uniquely innocent, only he could pay the penalty for someone else's disobedience. And by being punished for crimes he did not commit, he took away the punishment that was rightfully ours. And as we have already stated, the wages of sin is death. Jesus had to die 
to pay the price for our sin. Death is sin's recompense. By fulfilling the law, Christ defeated sin. But a dead Christ, a dead substitute, a dead Savior, still means that there is no hope beyond the grave. Paul explains this in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 17 and following. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. In addition, as we'll see later this morning, if God had planned to reserve for himself a people out of the category of children of wrath, in order to move them to the category of children of mercy, without a plan to deal with the reason that they are labeled children of wrath, that would have left a conflict in the character of God. Let me explain. The disobedience of God's creation, first within Satan and then within mankind, if left unaddressed, would have been a huge problem for the perfect being. God's justice, holiness, and wrath would have been at odds with his grace, mercy, and love. Now, we may try to reconcile God's actions with our own ways of dealing with internal conflict. We may have thought that his most dominant traits would have prevailed. And it's a good thing his grace, mercy, and love outweigh his justice, holiness, and wrath. But this is not how God operates. God is the embodiment of all of his traits. He doesn't merely possess a measure of justice, holiness, wrath, grace, mercy, and love. He is these things. Any measure of these traits that we might possess come from our being made in his image. God is as holy as he is gracious. God is as merciful as he is just. In a perfect world with perfect beings, these character traits never would be at odds with each other. However, in a world corrupted by rebellion and disobedience, how could God be both at the same time? 
Thus, the plan of God from the onset of creation had to include dealing with these enemies. Something had to be done about sin. And that something was the complete eradication of sin. To leave sin unchecked would defy his justice. To leave his people in their sins would negate his mercy. In either situation, God would cease to be God. <clears throat> the second R in resurrection is for Jesus being proven right or vindicated. From the onset of his ministry, Jesus amazed the people, the teachers, the experts of the law with his knowledge of the scriptures. A great level of amazement from his audience was not enough to validate his claims of divinity. Well, what would convince people that he was indeed the Son of God? What if God the Father actually told people that Jesus was indeed his Son? Matthew 17, the first eight verses. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus. Imagine, if you will, the very voice of God proclaiming that Jesus was his son. That would certainly validate him. But consider the audience. Only Peter, James, and John were witnesses. And I'm fairly sure they got the message. And this was not the only time God audibly pronounced Jesus as his son. He did so at his baptism by John the Baptist. Not only these two instances, but also as he prays to his father in the midst of the people he was teaching. John 12, 27 through 30. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd there that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Three times humankind is allowed to hear the audible pronouncement from God the Father that Jesus is indeed his beloved Son. And yet, despite these divine pronouncements all throughout his ministry, Jesus' authority and authenticity was called into question. Here are a few examples. From believers, Mark 9, verses 21 through 23, concerning the Father and his possessed Son. Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. 
and it is often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. From Satan, Matthew 4, verse 3. And, it, and the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And in verse 6, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. From the religious leaders, John 10, verse 24 and following. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Brethren, Jesus says in this last passage that the works done in the name of the Father bore witness about who he was. Later on in the chapter, he continues this line of reasoning. John 10, 37 and 38, If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Of all the miracles people had witnessed, sorry, all the miracles people had witnessed had come via the means of a conduit. Jesus had commanded and something occurred. As he stated in John 10 that he did the works of the Father and in the Father's name. Clearly it was God the Father's will and power that was made manifest in the miracles performed by Jesus Christ. It is not as if Jesus did not have the power or the authority to perform miracles. He chose to be subservient to the Father's will. Nonetheless, people witnessed Jesus performing miracles as this conduit, so to speak, of the will and power of God the Father. Thus, the means or conduit, Jesus Christ, was validated by the power of God. God used similar ways in the Old Testament concerning his prophets. Deuteronomy 18, 21 and 22. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know that the word that the Lord has not spoken. When a prophet speaks the name in the name of the Lord, and if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. Now the point I am trying to make here is this. If Jesus had simply been the method or means by which God the Father manifested his power, when he died, God would have simply raised another person to be that conduit. He had done so repeatedly throughout history. In the past, he'd raise up a prophet or a judge, and when that person died, he would raise up another prophet or judge. But brethren, the resurrection is different. The Bible says repeatedly that God himself raised Jesus from the dead. There was... No conduit or means other than God the Father himself. Think of all the times God did something miraculous in Scripture. He always did so via some sort of means. A few examples. The angel of the Lord. Or with Egypt, the angel of death. 
water from the rock, Aaron and his staff, even the raising of the dead via a prophet. What about the creation of this world? Were not all things made through Jesus Christ? God does not record for us the actual moment of Jesus' resurrection. But he does declare that it was God who raised him from the dead. The significance of this event cannot be lost on his people. The resurrection of Jesus is special because God himself steps in without an intermediary to address the state of his son. Whereas before there was doubt as to just who exactly was speaking from the cloud, there can be no doubt as to who it is that is raising a dead person to life. Only God can do that. And by doing so, God irrevocably and unmistakably validates his son and his ministry. The statements of Jesus concerning who he was and the purpose of his ministry are proven right by his resurrection. The last R in resurrection stands for reward. Hebrews 10, 12 and 13 But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. One of the rewards that Christ now enjoys is rest. The battle is over. The work of salvation is done. It is finished means I've accomplished what I set out to do. However, I want us to realize that although Jesus is currently resting from his work of salvation, he is not doing nothing in heaven. Right now, at this very moment, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Hebrews 1 verse 3. He ever lives to intercede on our behalf. Hebrews 7.25 And as we read a moment ago in Hebrews 10, he waits until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. This should allow us to understand what it really means to rest in Christ. We may think there will be nothing to do in heaven. We'll all be lounging about on clouds, plucking harps and such. The rest that we'll experience in glory, brethren, will be from the effects of sin. No more toil, no more pain, no more fatigue, no more wasted effort. And when you really think about what tires you in this world, the things that truly make you weary, the things that make you long for rest, are they not all derived from the effects of sin? And there won't be sin and glory. Therefore, there are no effects of sin either. God continues to work today, and so will we. Secondly, Hebrews 12.2 says, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What is this joy that is mentioned? How great must it be to motivate the Lord Jesus Christ to the cross? We as the redeemed people of God, like to dwell on the fact that we are his chosen people and that Christ is our very great reward. This is all true. He is our joy and he is our hope. However, 
As in a marriage, when each partner prizes the other, we must remind ourselves that we are also the bride of Christ. We are the reward or gift, if you will, to Jesus Christ. Concerning his legacy, Isaiah 53 verse 8 says, By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. This would make sense to us in earthly terms. He died without having any children. Therefore, there would be obviously no descendants. But just a few verses later, we read in verse 10, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. This verse promises a legacy from God the Father for his son, Jesus Christ. Where would this legacy come from? Reading on in verse 11, After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. This concept of a chosen people being moved by God from objects of wrath to objects of mercy is replete throughout Scripture. Hosea's life with his adulterous wife and the children born to them help us to understand this marvelous concept. Hosea and his wife Gomer had a daughter who was named Lo-Ruhamah which translated means no mercy. They also had a son named Lo-Ami, which means not my people. And you can read the account in first, the first chapter of Hosea. In Hosea 2.23 we read, And I will have mercy on Lo-Ruhama, no mercy. And I will say to Lo-Ami, not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. 1 Samuel 12, the people of Israel were just confronted by Samuel of their sin of rejecting God as their king, and they are rightfully worried about God's wrath, to which Samuel says in verse 22, The Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Here we see the reasoning for God preserving Israel. It was for his name's sake and his good pleasure that they are preserved as a people, reserved for himself. And although they have lived up to the name Lo-Ami, not my people, by rejecting God as king, he treats them as his people and as if they had been obedient for his name's sake. By the time we move to the New Testament, we are allowed to see some more detail. Titus 2, 13 and 14 Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Here we see the holiness of Jesus Christ working in conjunction with his mercy and love. In order for lo ruhama, no mercy, to receive mercy, she must be purified from sin. She must be made holy. 
For both these passages, Jesus Christ obeys God the Father when he could not and would not, when we could not and would not. His obedience is transferred to us, and we move from lo ami, not my people, to ami, my people. And where we could not be granted mercy and grace because of our rebellion and wickedness, Jesus Christ pays the penalty for our sin and covers us with his blood. God is appeased, and we move from being lo ruhama, no mercy, to ruhama, mercy. In addition, God grants us a glimpse of the future. He shows us that he does indeed keep his promises. He lets us know that we are his. Revelation 21, 2 and 3. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And now verses 9 through 11. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the last seven plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Brethren, this is a picture of the bride's holiness, having the glory of God, radiant and clear as crystal. The fruition of the promises given to Israel of old, I will say to not my people, you are my people, and he shall say, you are my God. For those today who identify with lo ruhama, no mercy, or lo ami, not my people, I hope you have seen this morning that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the culmination of the work of salvation. Jesus has not left any work for you to do. You cannot work yourself out of being a child of wrath. You cannot work yourself into God's mercy. To believe so would mean that the awful work that Jesus Jesus endured in the torture of the Roman guards, the absolute agony of crucifixion, and the horrific position of being forsaken by God could somehow be enhanced by your pitiful attempts at obedience or penance. That is akin to a slap in the face of God. You cannot work yourself into God's kingdom, but you can be snatched out of your current position and placed into a better position by God himself. You have heard today of his mercy and grace. He is both ready and able to save God says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Call out to God this morning to save you. John 6, 37 through 40. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this 
is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For the people of God, we look forward to this promised day. Though most of us, if not all, will be in the earth at his return, not one of us will be left behind. He will lose nothing of all that has been given to him. We will be raised on that day. Why? It is the will of the Father. And Jesus still obeys the will of his Father. Let's pray. Father, thank you for that. Thank you for the plan of salvation. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being an obedient son. To do your Father's will, even to the point of death, and that shameful death on a tree. Lord, may your people be grateful this morning. May we rejoice in celebrating the resurrection of our Christ. It gives us hope that in that last day, Lord, we will meet you in the air. Thank you for Christ. Please bless the rest of our day today. In his name we ask these things. Amen. From the Brown Hymnal, let's say number 237. Two, three, seven. Let's stand.
Let's pray, and um, we'll give thanks for the food here, and we have a wonderful breakfast awaiting us in the basement, in the fellowship hall. Father, we thank you for the promise we just sang about, that uh, we shall behold you when you come. It says in the scripture that dead in Christ will rise first, so that we're not going to precede them. If we're dead, we will rise first. If we're alive, we'll be changed to meet those in the air along with your coming. And we rejoice in that. We're thankful for our celebration today as we celebrate life. As Jared pointed out, we don't serve a dead Savior, but one who has come to life. Victory over our last enemy, which is death. And if we're in Christ, the promises are ours as well. Bless now in our fellowship to come. Thank you for our food. Thank you for uh, the preparation. Thank you for the fact that we can just fellowship with one another and rejoice in being with one another on this, your Lord's day. Amen. Okay, we're ready to go to the breakfast. Good stuff, Jared.